with all of that said, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bible. We are uh, continuing the series in Matthew, and we're focused on this idea of kingdom ethics. And um, I'm excited about our passage today. And I want to start with a little quote. Several years back, I read this quote, heard this quote, somehow I came across it, and uh, here's the quote. The only difference between liberals and conservatives are the portions of Scripture we choose to ignore. Okay? Now, I'm not going to ask you whether you agree or disagree with the quote. I'm, I don't want to get into uh, how true that quote is or uh, whether or not it's true at all or maybe if you look at it from one perspective or another... None of that is the issue. I want to actually rework the quote a little bit this morning and uh, to say it this way. The only difference, perhaps, between you and me or between you and someone sitting next to you is the portions of Scripture we choose to obey. That often, there are passages of Scripture that we gloss over, ignore out of convenience, or uh, just kind of want to avoid. Mark Twain said it this way, It's not what I don't know about the Bible that scares me. It's what I do know. The passage we're going to be looking at this morning is one of those passages that I think often wants to be ignored. It's a passage that uh, some of us wish Jesus wouldn't have been so clear in his communication. Some of us wish Jesus wouldn't have even brought up the topic. Uh, We just kind of want to ignore it. And yet, Matthew 5 outlines very clearly for us kingdom ethics related to anger and lust. So if you have your Bible, we're going to look at those. Starting in verse 21, you can kind of follow in your text as I read. It says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, to understand this passage a little bit more, I think we have to understand a little bit of the hermeneutics of Jesus, the way that he looks at the text. See, what he's doing is he's stating some contrasting statements where he is trying to get us to begin to understand a little bit more about the true understanding of the law, or the spirit behind the law. And so what he does is he has these contrasting statements that carry a bit of a rhythm with them. The rhythm is, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And over and over, six different times he says, you've heard it said, but let me inform you this way. 
or this is what you think that the law is communicating to you, but let me state the spirit and the intent behind the law that is being communicated to you. And so he goes back and forth in this bit of a rhythm. And the point that Jesus is trying to make is to draw people back to the spirit of the law, the reason that it was given in the first place. Now for us to catch a little perspective of what he's trying to really address in the heart of the listener, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25 for just a moment. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is talking with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. He's hanging out with this group of people, and he begins to express to them woes. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you guys are hypocrites. And he keeps stating woe after woe after woe. Um, really pointing out areas in their life that they're not living out the very calling that he has given them. And if you look down in verse 25, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Matthew chapter, did I say 25? Sorry, 23. Verse 25. Thanks, Asia. <clears throat> so, I'll read it again. What are you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? You, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What Jesus is getting at here is that it's not about outward performance. It's not about conformity. It's not about the externals, but rather it's about the internals. That the kingdom life is a life that's lived from the inside out. So Jesus is trying right from the beginning to address that true holiness in the kingdom, the true way of living in kingdom rightness, is to live from the inside flowing out. That's why Jesus says, some of you have heard this, but let me explain it to you this way. Now, in our churches at large, there is this growing movement, I think, of behavior modification versus gospel change. What I mean is the Church of America is big on the method of the gospel and not so much on other parts of the gospel. What I mean by that is we um, obsess over methods. Give us the latest book to read. Give us the best method to tackle sin Let us sign up for a stronger or better accountability group. Let's figure out church growth methods or tactics. Let's find out what are the ways that we can give us another book to read, something that will help us with our methods in becoming all that God wants us to be. But Jesus is not talking here in any of the Sermon on the Mount about the method of the gospel, rather the miracle of the gospel. The fact that you and I, if we have believed in Jesus as Lord, that is this understanding that we have been regenerated, that we are a new creation, that we have been changed from the inside out. And so what Jesus is getting at with the 
individuals here that he's speaking to. It's that this is not, again, about behavior modification. It's not about a to-do list. It's not about all these things that I have to somehow attain to earn credit, but rather what he's getting at is that there is a spirit that lives within all of us that our lives should reflect what it looks like to be in the kingdom. And so he addresses two topics specifically to followers and non-followers as he's communicating this to help us see what is the true ethic of living like a follower of Jesus in the kingdom related to anger and lust. And so this morning, what I want to do as we look at these two topics is to not just work our way straight through the passage and hit every detail along the way. I want to touch base just for a moment on anger and then lust. And then I want to try to communicate three main concepts that apply to both particular ideas. Okay? So we'll start with anger. Jesus says very clearly, you've heard it said, do not murder. Now, it's my assumption that one of the reasons Jesus started with murder is because he wanted everyone to feel like they were in a good spot to begin with, right? I mean, like you've heard it said, don't commit murder or you'll be liable to judgment. And you can imagine people are going, well, I got that one down. Check. Haven't killed anyone lately. I'm in good shape. That's fine. And then Jesus goes, but, but really, it's much more than that. Really, he flips it on its head and he says, it's, it's not about murder, it's actually about anger. So he says, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother. Now we are an angry people. If you consider the United States alone, we tend to be angry people. And I don't just mean people that well up with anger inside, but actually people that well up with anger inside and then act upon it. So here are a couple statistics. You know how nerdy I am and I like statistics. So here are some numbers. The year I was born, there was a little over 20,000 murders and close to 500,000 assaults that were reported in the United States. The year I graduated high school, there were 24,530 murders and 1.1 million plus assaults. This last year, there was 14,000 murders and about 800,000 assaults. Now, our numbers are improving, aren't they? But the point is, these kind of statistics just reveal a small slice of the pie of anger. I looked at a website this week uh, based out of New York. This is recalling the homicides in the boroughs of New York from 2003 through 2011. The goal of these this website is to reveal how much New York has cut down on crime. And it has. It's improved quite dramatically. But between that time, there were 4,161 murders with another 39 to 40 murders that have not been stated or declared on this website yet. Go to the next one. You can see it a little bit more detail. You can click on any one of those dots, and it will tell you the exact person and age and race of the person that was murdered, the perpetrator, the person and age and race, and then uh, the method in which they were killed. We are an angry people. Now, to bring it a little closer to home, I know that you would love me to bring it closer to home, so I will. Um, this morning, I got on a website and just uh, looked up in the city of Spokane, just central, uh, what are some of the um, 
crimes of anger that have taken place between the time I went to bed and the time I woke up this morning. Okay? You can, uh, not that slide yet. So here they are, 12.02 a.m. This is Central Spokane, 12.02 a.m. shooting, 12.07 a.m. argument, 1.54 a.m. Person with a weapon, 2.02 a.m. A fight, 2.02 a.m. Shooting, 2.10 a.m. Argument, 2.31 a.m. Shooting, 2.42 a.m. Domestic violence, 3.55 a.m. Shooting, 4.35 a.m. Domestic violence, 4.35 a.m. Different location, domestic violence, 4.50 a.m. Fight, you, you see where we're going, right? I'll stop there. But th- this is just stats from just here in central Spokane. So then what I did is I looked up really quick. The, uh, this is my home. I live at 904 West Kiernan. Right there on the little dot. That circle is a one-half mile radius around my home. So the reason I chose my home is so that the rest of you could continue to feel safe about where you live. Okay. And this is just a quick glance at the website that reveals the crime that has happened in my neighborhood starting since January. Okay? That's a little picture. Each of those represents some act of, uh, of violence or some thing that's been done, some assault, some crime in my neighborhood. You can flip it. The point of all of that really is this. We are a people of anger. Jesus is addressing Not the issue of murder as much as he's saying, let's take it down a level. Let's go inside and say, we are a people of anger. Now, anger is defined by the all-informative Wikipedia. says this, anger is an automatic response to ill treatment. It is a feedback mechanism in which an unpleasant stimulus is met with an unpleasant response. I love that last little line. An unpleasant stimulus is met with an unpleasant pleasant response. Really, the issue with anger is it's a primary function that alerts me to an obstruction of my will. Have you ever thought of it that way? That when your will is thwarted, anger arises. Just naturally. But see, Jesus isn't getting at just the idea of the initial response. He's not getting at the idea of just the thing that happens, that stimuli that takes place when my will has been thwarted and all of a sudden now I'm frustrated. The anger that Jesus is describing in this text is a progressive anger. It's an anger that is growing. It's an anger that has been received and then indulged. It's something that they're actually beginning to see a progression to the anger. So he starts off by describing that some of us are angry, and then he moves to this idea of contempt. And he uses the term that some of you, he says, are guilty. In the NIV, it uses the term of saying raka to your brother or sister. Okay? Now, raka in Aramaic is the idea of empty headed. Okay? The original way people said the word would help you to understand a little bit more about it because it's the sound that one makes when they collect spit in their throat. Like, that sound, that guttural, nasty, you know, your sneeze, you got all that stuff in you, that one. It's drawing it out from inside. And really, contempt is this idea of believing that people are so below you, they're beneath consideration. That they are worthless. That they deserve scorn. 
I mean, contempt is really about excluding people, pushing them away, leaving them out, making them feel isolated. It's almost as if you're saying to them, you're not worthy of me, and I spit on you, is the point that Jesus is making. There's just this utter contempt for people. So you've moved from anger to contempt, and then he moves to this idea of malice, really. And he begins to say that you're, you're saying the word fool. Now, when we think of fool, we think, you know, like, you're stupid. And that seems kind of pansy, you know? Like, you wouldn't go, oh, you're so stupid. And then us go, man, that really hurt me, you know? No, it, that, we don't think of it that way. Um, Dallas Willard says if you were to, like, to maybe define the word in today's terms, it'd be more like an effing bastard or something like that. Or a term that would be worse than that. I imagine you could think of a word or a term that would be something that would declare with ill intent, with it, this malicious desire to, to offend, to insult, to attack. That, that would be the point that Jesus is making here. He's saying that the issue is pretty deep. And the issue is within you and within I. Moves on to lust. Second contrast that Jesus brings up here is lust. And he says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Now, he's specifically dealing with or addressing the idea of married person having sexual intercourse outside of marriage. That's what he's specifically going after. And then he says, but however, it's different than that. It's more than that. And he addresses this issue of lust. What he does is he interprets the law by using the Tenth commandment to help redefine the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment being, don't commit adultery. The tenth commandment being, do not covet, do not long for, do not lust after someone else's wife. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if you want the full understanding of the law, if you want to live into the reality of the kingdom life, it's not just about whether or not you've had sex outside of marriage. It has to do with lust. It has to do with this desire. So Jesus is going, hey, are you relating well with one another in the domain of sexuality? Just because you can check off the list that says, no, you've not had sex outside of marriage, does not mean that you're relating well sexually toward other people. And so let me define really quick this idea of lust, because I think it's important for us to all be kind of on the same terms with the word. Lust is not the initial look. Lust is not attraction. Lust is not the time when someone catches your eye and you go, wow, they're really attractive. That's not lust. Oftentimes we begin to define lust that way, but that's not the idea. Dallas Willard defines lust this way. It's using his or her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. So it's entertaining the initial glance. It's fantasizing, really, about touching, caressing, and ultimately entering into the body of someone else. That's what he's getting at. This is what lust is. That lust is then defined by him as this idea of adultery. That if you were 
fantasizing, imagining, pursuing, playing with those images in your mind in such a way that you are, in fact, in your heart, committing adultery. And so he's driving home this idea that what would you do with those thoughts had you had the occasion and there were no consequences? It's kind of the question he's asking. Would you act on them? If you are, then there's really not much difference between what you're thinking and what you would ultimately do, except for the occasion to do it. So Jesus talks about these two big ideas, and I'm convinced that there are principles that apply to both of them that I just want to highlight this morning in wrapping up our time. All right? There are three principles. The first one is this. Both anger and lust will consume. They will grow, develop, increase, and then ultimately consume. See, both lust and anger start off small. They start off with that initial gut reaction. They start off with that initial attraction, but then they begin to fester or we begin to feed them. We begin to entertain thoughts. So let me ask you a couple questions here. and I'd love for your response. The first one is this. In what unhealthy ways do we foster anger or allow it to fester or allow it to grow? So what are some unhealthy ways that we allow anger to grow? It doesn't have to be your unhealthy way, but just in general, what are unhealthy ways that we allow anger to grow? You tell me. Gossip. Good. Grudges. Complaining. In the car. Yep, continuing to dwell on it. Any others come to mind? Passive aggressive. <clears throat> I mean, if we, could, we could probably imagine several ways, but one of those is that whole idea of rehearsing it. Just replaying again and again, man, this is what they did, and this is how it offended me, and this is why I'm hurt, and this is why I'm angry. And, man, I'm th- and you start kind of studying all of the angles of that injustice. We rehearse the hurt. I think the other thing we often do is we play out in our mind the response we would give if we only had the guts to give it. You ever do that? Play out in your mind again and again like, oh man, next time that happens, I am so going to say this. And I'm going to let them know. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. I'm going to, you know. And we, we just start playing through all these scenarios. And all it's doing is just furthering this frustration. It's stewing. It, it begins to move from anger to contempt to malice because we feed it. So my next question, in what ways do we feed lust? How do we feed lust? Okay, focus on the struggle. What else do we do? Not set boundaries. Good. What else? Okay, porn. There's a lot of specifics. We could list probably specific after specific of ways that we indulge it, for sure. I think one of the things that we often do is we keep an area of our lives secret or excluded from other people. And that only feeds it. If if I'm not willing to share a struggle that I have, then in all honesty, if we're sitting here going, hey, yes, I struggle with lust. I, I do. I would guess, I'd venture to say, Worst case scenario, 50% of the guys do, right? 
worst case. <laughs> no. No. But, but we all act like it's, the, it's only my issue. It could, oh, it could only be my issue. I can't, I can't reveal this to someone else. I, I can't talk about it. And I keep these areas of my life secret or hidden. I think that I'm the only one going through the battle. Or the other thing we do is we just dabble with it. Um, if I just, I mean, just play with it a little bit on the side, no big deal. I can control it. I can contain it. It's not a problem. And what's interesting in, in the wisdom literature, um, the scripture says, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? And the answer is obviously no. You can't play with it. You can't bring it into your life. You can't allow it to be a part of you and not have it consume you. It will ultimately consume. Secondly, anger and lust alter our perspective of others. Anger and lust alter our perspective of others. See, all of us have been created in the image of God, and it is our understanding that in being image bearers, all of us carries an inherent value in who we are, regardless of our function or our ability or our perceived offerings to the world, right? That all of us have that value. And yet, anger and lust thwart, change, um, just mar the image of God that we see in other people. So malice, contempt, anger begins to create in me just this, this idea that you're not worthy of me. That I'm frustrated at you, I'm angry at you, you don't deserve what you have. That I, you're worthy of being spit on. And we begin to not see the image of God in the person, but we rather see them is the person that thwarts our plans, is the person that is ruining our life, is the person that just doesn't understand what it's like to be me. And lust, lust comes at it from a different perspective. It begins to see you only for the gratification that you can give to me. I become selfish in my viewpoint of you. That I begin to devalue you that we begin to objectify other people, that we begin to no longer see you as image bearers, but rather as subjects of personal satisfaction or potential enticement. That's it. That's how we begin to see one another. I, <clears throat> Shannon and I have many, many conversations with our boys. They're uh, nine, almost ten, and then seven. And uh, we talk about these issues. We have to. If you don't start now... Um, you're already behind the curve. And so we begin to have these conversations, and what I am trying so hard to communicate to my boys, and will even more as, as they get older, is this. That it's not just whether or not you lust. That's not the point. Completely. That there's also this understanding that God wants us to see value in other people. And if you lust after a woman... What you have done is you've begun to disrespect her, to not see her with honor, to treat her as less. That is not acceptable. So it's not just an issue of lust. It's also an issue of honor, respect, the image of God. You see? Don't just make it about you. Don't just make it about this issue. Make it about the whole perspective. It's also about the other whom you're disrespecting. So, Moving on, last one. 
uh, radical approaches to dealing with anger and lust are required. What's interesting in this passage to me is that in both cases, with anger and lust, Jesus says extreme measures are required. Extreme measures are required. So if you take anger, for example, this is what he says. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What he's saying is this. If you're in the middle of worshiping God, if you're in the middle of a religious service, a formal gathering, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God convicts you in such a way that you recognize you have an issue with someone else, Drop what you're doing and deal with it. Be reconciled. Leave. Get out. Go and deal with it, is what he's saying. To put it in real clear perspective, because we go, yeah, okay, maybe I would get up from a service. What he's saying is, this is the religious time for the Jewish people. The most holy time of the holy time when they enter the temple. He's saying, if you're there at the temple... You're offering your sacrifice. You're in the middle of the most intimate religious time with God. Leave that time for this thing. It would be equal to, I just did a wedding in California. And imagine for a moment that you're at the wedding with me. I'm standing here. There is uh, the groom. The bride has just come down the aisle. They begin to start to say vows to one another. They're in the middle of a sacred, sacred moment. And the guy realizes, oh, crap. I've got something against someone else. What the Bible is saying is, leave. Walk out. Deal with it. Then come back. Now that seems extreme. Because it is. It'd be like being in the baptistry. You're about ready to get baptized. You're in the water. And then you jump out and you sprint out of the service because you know you have something to deal with. That's the point he's making here. This is not just a, hey, when you get around to it, if it works in your schedule, if it's convenient for you and you have anger and you have an issue with someone else, deal with it. He's saying deal with it now. Now. I mean, I would love to just say right now, leave. If you have something and you know you do with someone else, leave. Whatever happens the rest of this service pales in comparison to you leaving. That's what he's saying. And then he gets at this idea of lust. Now it's interesting, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, Church fathers in the past have made themselves eunuchs over this verse. That is not the point, okay? It's hyperbole. He's making a statement not about self-mutilation or maiming. What he's making a statement about is this. Deal drastically with sin, right? Don't flirt with it. Hate it. Crush it. Kill it. Dig it out. That's why he says... Paul does in the New Testament. I think it's Colossians. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Put it to death. 
Don't be okay with it. Don't let it hang around. Root it out. And Jesus is saying that extreme measures need to be taken to remove the temptation. Are you taking extreme measures? Am I taking extreme measures? I mean, that's the kind of question I think we have to ask ourselves. Am I willing to walk out in the middle of a service because I have to deal with it? Or am I willing to take extreme measures with my life in the area of lust? We're heading to communion now. And the bottom line of this talk is this. The kingdom ethics require us to live into the reality of the kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the question we have to ask is, are we really kingdom people? And if we are, then love, the ethic of love, should overwhelm and consume the ethic of anger or of lust. And so if there's something during this time of communion that you need to deal with, I would encourage you, before you take the elements, deal with it. If we start to sing and you need to leave, leave. Leave. If you start to sing and there's something that's just tearing you up inside, deal with it. Because I think that's what it's about. It's not about behavior modification. It's about gospel change. It's about God's Spirit working in us and rooting out all that is not who He has called us to be. Let's pray.